years ago, we used to reuse graves all the time, and after a certain amount of time had passed, the bones of corpses would be dug up, put into a charnel house, and the land would be reused. What's a charnel house? A charnel house is a vault or building where human skeletal remains are stored, dingbat. How was I meant to know that? You just were, moron. Today, we have a great fear of reusing a plot, and consequently we are facing a shortage of burial space. Councils are worried by the realisation that hundreds of years after you died, they will still need to meet the costs of mowing around your grave and re-erecting your crumbling gravestone. Well, that's councils for you. The minute you stop paying council tax, they don't want to know you. They are also jittery about the cost of buying land for new cemeteries and the cost of owning intensely valuable cemetery land that can't be sold or developed. The problem is compounded by outmoded burial laws, which make it an offence to tamper with a grave. The Burial Act of 1857 made it illegal to disturb bodies without a special licence from the Home Office. So, how do we maximise cemetery profitability by increasing burial density by up to five times. One option is above-ground mausolea. We went to Milton Keynes to watch one being built. My name's John Prentice, I'm the Managing Director of Mausolea Management Limited. And Justin Smith, I'm the Technical Director of Mausoleum Management Limited. Basically, mausoleum is an in integral building in which a series of chambers are installed. In the cases that we're building in the UK, what we're putting in is fibreglass chambers, which are very light, uh, very flexible, and can be finished to very high degrees of precision. And this means that we can build buildings very quickly, um, have them occupied in a very short space of time, unlike concrete buildings that take uh, a lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of resource to build, and their sort of carbon footprint is not very good. So what we're doing in the UK is looking to undertake a whole series of sort of multi-storey mausoleum, but it, in a very tasteful way, not uh, like your usual car park. And later on today, we've got a company coming down from Manchester who are looking to build a very significant mausoleum in the middle of Manchester that's going to occupy about 10,000 crypts. It'll be six storeys high, about 1,200 crypts per, per storey. It'll have coffee shops, florists, areas for services, waiting rooms, uh, and, and generally a very nice and sustainable building. And that really is sort of part of what we're trying to achieve, is to create a sustainable operation, so that after 30 years of occupancy, you come out and can go into a, an integral ossuary, or alternatively, you can come out and be cremated and your ashes stored within the mausoleum itself. So you're still basically remembered and memorialised for forever. It's just that the actual act of entombment is relatively short-term, as it is in most other countries. Design cemeteries all around the country at the moment. And the thing that I guess frustrates us more than anything is the fact that we're still designing cemeteries as the Victorians designed them 150 years ago. And I'm sure that if you went and asked the Victorian architects of then, if they were alive today, say, would you do the same thing in today's atmosphere and, and culture, they would probably say no. The main issues of designing any cemetery is, for the most part in a green space, you've got two options. One is to build a sports pitch and the other one is to build a cemetery. You can't do an awful lot else in green space other than those two developments. But to build a cemetery, you've got to have the Environment Agency's consent to do that. And 
because of the nature of most of the land in the UK being fairly wet, as we can see from outside now, it's pouring of rain, there's water standing everywhere, and this site is a particularly wet site. So one of the problems with, um, with any cemetery is that if you've got water at the grave or burial depth, then technically you're not allowed to use that for burial for the environment agency uh, requirements say that you can't. Uh, likewise, there are about four or five other very strict criteria that the environment agency impose on new burial sites. And that means that a lot of areas that could be used for burial, or rather would be like to be used for burial, can't be used because of the environmental implications. The, the beauty about mausoleum is that you can build them in brown space, you can build them in uh, green space subject to planning consent, but you're not constrained by groundwater issues, because obviously you're above ground and everything is contained. And in terms of sort of uh, the, the, the hygiene of mausoleum, they're all vented with carbon filters, so you know, there is no, there's no odour coming out of them, which, which used to be a historical problem. So, so modern mausolea now are very, very high spec in terms of environmental protection, in terms of the sort of the, the nicety of it, preventing any, any sort of nasty odours coming out. And when eventually the, the, the body is exhumed, um, it's in a completely desiccated state, almost skeletal. And then the process of uh, putting them into ossuaries is a fairly clean and hygienic process. What actually allows the body to decompose is oxygen. So if it has oxygen, it will decompose. There'll be oxygen for bacteria, and the bacteria break down the, the tissues and break down all the proteins. So that eventually, all you are left with is, is the bone, it's the calcium that's left in, in, the, uh, in the crypt. It does take time, or take at least 10 years for it to, for it to occur. But the mausoleum that we're designing now are fully vented, so that allows the circulation of air to go through the mausoleum during the process. So clean air goes in, filtered air comes out, and that's an ongoing process for the, for the life of the mausoleum. And at the end of that process, the body has fully decomposed. We are proposing a rental period for this mausoleum of 30-odd years, which by European standards is actually quite a long time. Uh, I guess that's because Britain is a lot colder than Southern Europe, where mausoleums were generally developed at the beginning. I'm told that in Greece, uh, you're only given two years. And after two years, the archbishop comes along and scrapes through the mausoleum. And if you haven't properly decomposed, you get another year for free. But after that, that's that. So we're, we're pretty, pretty generous here. In terms of uh, embalming, the, there should be, uh, if, depending on the type of embalming that's, that's going on, there may be some people who wish to be embalmed and they'll be obviously clearly mummified to some degree. And there is an option that if they're taken out, they can be basically cleaned by, by, by the funeral directors. If there is still, still tissue left on the bones, and obviously to go into the ossuary, which is purely for bones, bones are put into a bag, a bag is labelled off and put into the ossuary, which is basically a miniature crypt. And on the front of that ossuary is a, a brass plaque with the name of the deceased in that, therefore, allows the, the person to, or the, the remains of the person, to be, be remembered and memorialised forever. Now, clearly, you don't want to be putting remains in there that aren't fully sort of cleaned. You don't want to have tissue still left on the bones. So that it would be the job of the, the field directors to, to, to clean up the, uh, the remains. And there are, obviously, field directors that, that are prepared to do that. Not a very pleasant job, but hopefully it's not a job that will be done that frequently. And that's why we would always sort of try and recommend that 
we bury in a, in a sort of uh, natural state. The, the tissues, technically they should be cremated and disposed of in a, in a hygienic way and technically the remains should still remain with the deceased so in other words the ashes should be put within the, uh, the ossuary so that you, you, you respect the, the, the entire body and that ensures that there is, there is no sort of separation of parts of the body, they're all kept together. You can build a 10-acre cemetery for around about half a million to two million pounds, and that will facilitate somewhere in the order of 6,000 burials. Likewise, it would cost you around about two or three million pounds to build a mausoleum that will facilitate around about 2,000, 2,000 people. Now, clearly, that's significantly more expensive but then you can charge significantly more for the crypts. We'll be looking to charge somewhere in the order of between five and six thousand pounds per crypt. But because it's sustainable, you can reuse them, then you've got ongoing, ongoing revenue streams. So it is a sustainable business. If you've got very sort of uh, restricted space, then if you can uh, build a high-rise mausoleum on half an acre where you could potentially get up to seven, eight thousand people, then that becomes a very economic use of that space and therefore it becomes more profitable. In this country, we still stick to the, the earth of burials where the soil is mounded up, you know, weather like this, mud gets everywhere, people are walking in mud, and it's just, it's just outrageous that we are still subjecting people to that, to that level of service. It's not necessarily the faults of the councils because budgets are always limited. Everyone pays for quality, but in this country we're expecting people to pay high prices for poor quality. And, and it's very, very sad. We shouldn't be. It's, it's, it's a travesty. Whenever we design a cemetery, we have to ensure that the Muslim sections are oriented to face Mecca. In this country, in churchyards, you'll always find graves facing east, and it's always a good way to orientate yourself. Uh, go to a churchyard and you'll know which way, which way east is. I mean, there are lots of sort of theories as to, to why they're facing east. Obviously, the Messiah was going to come from the east, so everyone's sort of watching out for him uh, in the direction that he was coming. But I think if you ask the general public now, you know, what is the reason for facing east, very few would actually know. Do we have the appetite at the, the council level for innovative design? I'm not too sure. I think innovative design requires a little bit of risk-taking from the members of the council, and it requires risk-taking in terms of some of the cost. We're trying to, to look at designing even innovatively well, when it comes to private cemeteries, because we have the flexibility to do it. We're slightly more restricted when it comes to municipal and uh, council-operated cemeteries. One of the real components of all those gardens is fantastic trees. But when we come to put trees in cemeteries, we're either restricted because the councils don't like trees because they're expensive to maintain, or if we do put in trees, they have to fit with the indigenous trees within the area. Even though this mausoleum is far from finished, all the niches have been pre-booked and paid for, and we are already setting the wheels in motion for planning permission for an extension to double, if not treble, the size of this mausoleum in the fairly short term. These places can look, look stunning, they can look beautiful, they are functional, but they can be very graceful in their appearance and they're very dignified, and that's what we're trying to achieve. The importance of conserving space and dying responsibly. But do we have the appetite at the council level for innovative ideas? Perhaps funeral pyres could become the perfect funeral ceremony. Devout Hindu Mr Devendra Gai of the Anglo-Asian Friendship Society 
has been attempting to re-legalise outdoor funeral pyres. He took his challenge to the High Court and the Law Lords ruled that Mr Guy's request is not incompatible with the 1902 Cremation Act, but frustratingly, that does not mean it is legal. Planning and local authorities, the Home Office and Environmental Health all continue to argue amongst themselves about the legal definition of what constitutes a crematorium. The crematorium establishment insists that this be a purpose-built crematorium with furnace and filters to comply with control of dangerous gases such as mercury emissions, largely as a result of amalgam fillings being burnt. The pyrists suggest that a compromise could be reached involving a walled enclosure to the sky and that the issue of fillings could be solved by their removal after death. If this is the only problem faced by the bereaved who wish to have this type of cremation, it seems like a small price to pay. How about a woodland burial? For some, it might not meet their grieving needs. Some people see it as a pauper grave and need the vanity of a headstone and daily visits. We spoke to Rosie Inman Cook of the Natural Death Centre to find out the truth about natural burials. At most sites, the tree, cost of the tree, is already included. And, uh, and you get a beautiful place and you're not hurried, you're not processed, you don't, you know, they don't do so many a day that they're like at the crematorium, they're all watching their watches saying, right, this family in, the next family out, you know, and just... It's it's uh, they're time rich places where families can can stand around the grave. They can have a picnic. They can have a champagne toast. They can play music. Things that in, in some municipal cemeteries you're just not allowed to do. I've seen I've witnessed beautiful beautiful funerals. At my dad's, for example, um, we had a barrel of his favourite um, local real ale at the side of the grave, and everybody had a pint or half pint, and we toasted him with that and whilst a string quartet were set up in the woodland next to the grave playing his favourite Mozart. The first natural burial site opened in 93 and there are now 270 or so around the UK. We lead the world in this method of um, burial. The idea is that you um, don't get filled with, the body does not get filled with invasive toxic chemicals. Um, as embalming or hygienic treatment, which people are often tricked into having because they don't know, it makes it sound as if it's a necessity and desirable rather than actually completely unnecessary. And if they knew what it was, they probably wouldn't want that done to their, their um, family member or friend. Um, you get buried in a place that will be run as a nature reserve. Um, there are requirements that the coffins are biodegradable and not made in a way that's unsustainable. Some places you get a tree planted on top of you or next to you or whatever you want. The, all the natural burial sites are different and they offer something different and, and doing your research again and talking about these things and going, going off and investigating is, is very wise. The better sites around the country are members of the Association of Natural Burial Grounds. We have a code of conduct and the public feedback to us. Every person who has a burial at one of those sites has a feedback form which comes direct to us so we can scrutinise the level of service that they're getting. We support our members and, and try and help them get back best practice. And Double depth and sort of bunk bed burials, graves, aren't, aren't, the, aren't the best because if a body is buried too deeply it doesn't um, decompose aerobically 
and it's not, not, not the best. So shallow single depth burials are the best. Most of them, because they're being planted up as woodland and, and protected areas will become nature reserves and they will be there in perpetuity. I mean, you can't say 200 years down the line, you know, some governmental compulsory purchase to put a new airport in, you know, nowhere is safe really, if even, but they're as safe as anything. And they give a longer, those that do have a lease on the graves, give a longer one than most municipal sites do now, whereas, a, you know, a municipal cemetery in Portsmouth or London, you probably only get 25 years. I mean, that natural burial is the answer. I mean, the, the whole point is that the, that the land is still usable on top for in either agricultural or forestry purposes. It's providing green space, it's providing habitat, and, and we're not short of land. This, this, this is a myth that's been spread around since the mid-20th century by the cremationists. Leave the land for the living was their, their slogan, and it's, that's really entered the psyche of the general public, and they, they believe that we're running out of space. We're not. If I did a very quick calculation. If we buried every single person who dies in the UK, and that's just about half a million people a year, if we buried every single person in a natural burial site, for example, it would take 2,000 years to use up the same amount of space as farmers have as set aside. That's 2,000 years. 2,000 years, you could have reused that land several times. It's, it's, a, it's a myth. R.I.P. Requiescat in pace. It's Latin, what for? May he or she rest in peace. Rust. Rest, Burke. Shut up, moron, I'm not a Burke. Hamburg SV Soccer Club in Germany is opening a cemetery next to its stadium for the die-hard soccer fanatic. Designed to look like a small, open stadium, the club has already started taking reservations. We spoke to Hans Fleischer, who has been a Hamburg fan for 57 years. The cemetery entrance is going to look like a football goal. Then uh, you go uh, through the posts and uh, go down a bit in the center of a, a field. It's uh, as if it's the green of, of a sports area. Um, great graves are arranged on uh, three levels like the stands of a sports stadium and in a, a semicircle to uh, resemble a, a football pitch. Uh, gravestones are decorated in blue and white. Uh, with floral arrangements to match. Uh, the club gets lots of requests from fans asking for their ashes to be buried under the goalposts or, or, or scattered on the pitch, but German law does not allow that. Uh, if you think about people supporting a club since uh, 30, 40, 50 years, it's, it's part of their life, so, so why shouldn't it be part of their death? It's the it's the perfect place to, to rest in peace when the final whistle blows. Death must be so beautiful to lie in the soft brown earth with the grasses waving above one's head and listen to the silence, to have no yesterday and no tomorrow, to forget time. To forgive life, to be at peace. There is no restriction on which type of vehicle you can use to convey a coffin. Older new houses, estate cars, tinted windowed private ambulances, motorcycle sidecars, bicycle powered trailer hearses, only fools and horses hearse, Land Rover hearse, 
VW camper van hearses, flatbed lorry, pickups or horse-drawn, front bucket of a JCB, very useful in my case. Hire a van, use your own car as long as it has a good load length. You are only limited by your imagination and budget. So, what type of funeral should you choose? We spoke to Paul Sinclair of Motorcycle Funerals Limited, Britain's leading authority on motorcyclist and biker funerals. In 2003, he won Best Modern Hearse for his motorcycle sidecar hearses, tested on the Isle of Man TT course. Dubbed the faster pastor, he has served families at funerals for 25 years. My name's Paul Sinclair, or Sinclair, depending where you're from, and uh, I run Motorcycle Funerals Limited, uh, which has been on the go for 12 years now and the first company of its kind in Britain. Motorcycle Funerals are very much a British company. We make all of the uh, sidecar hearses in Britain. We mostly use British bikes. We're based in Britain and uh, we're very proud of the fact that we've been true to British funeral culture. So we're very traditional in a British sense as well. Motorcycle Funerals is what's called a carriage master, which is slightly different from a funeral director in that we are specialists with the vehicles. Funerals non-serve religious funerals, non-religious funerals, uh, mixed funerals, uh, whatever you want to call them funerals. Our job is to transport the deceased in a dignified and a safe manner and that's what we focus on. Occasionally I wear my old hat, two hats, and I'm asked to do the service as well but by the majority of the time we're there to look after the deceased on the bike. When I started doing this, no one else in Britain had done anything like it. It used to be that if someone died and they owned a motorbike, if they were fortunate, someone in their family or perhaps a friend would own a sidecar and they would take the sidecar off and put the coffin on the chassis. But of course sidecars virtually vanished for years so that tradition went away and um, I wanted to address that. So obviously when I started, no one else was doing anything like this. I got the patent for it and we've built a fleet. So we do literally, to this day, have the only fleet of motorcycle hearses in the whole United Kingdom. And we actually have the only fleet in the whole world. When I started in 2002, I launched the outfit, that's the old fashioned word for a motorbike and sidecar, at the Hearse of the Year. We went to the Ace Cafe where we got the blessing of the bike with Father Scott Anderson and then we all rode to the Hearse of the Year competition where I'm very proud to announce again, never never tired of announcing, that we won the best alternative hearse in the United Kingdom. A motorbike and a sidecar hearse is quite something to see. Each one of our hearses is built to the same standard as the top automobile hearses. When you, we park beside them, our paint is to the same standard, our polish is to the same standard. In fact, if you forgive me saying it, there's some automobile hearses not as nice as ours. The deck inside ours, absolutely lovely. It's a kind of walnut finish and it's got stainless steel parts. Everything's very strong. Um, and the windows, the glass, things you would take for granted, very thick, strong glass, all nicely cleaned. We have a blower inside it, and the blower will keep down the condensation from the flowers, so you, you limit and quite often completely remove any steam 
We don't do things in halves. Even inside, we have little lights to light it up at night. We have a glass roof so the sunlight can light up the flowers and the coffin. Full, all-round uh, natural light, lighting up everything inside. Absolutely beautiful. On a motorbike, you have two seats. You have the seat for the rider, and you have a pillion seat. And the most special thing in my mind about what we do pastorally is that someone can sit beside the person who's died. Today, for example, young man died and his dad was distraught and his dad sat beside him. Now, his dad was able to do something for him on that final ride. It was personal. Everyone else saw it. It helped everybody else watching. And his dad, you know, he loved it when we gave it that blast up the road. And I'm just hoping that if it does come through the post, he'll pay for the fine. I recently did a funeral where I broke my record. Five members of the family wanted to sit beside the coffin. So we had to de design the route so that I would keep stopping. Then one would get out the limousine and get on the bike. And then and when we finally got to the crematorium, I think three of them took turns. So they would walk and then got on the bike. And I thought there was something wonderful about the person's last ride being shared by their whole family. I'm from Scotland and I lived in London for 13 years as a church minister but I deliberately moved to the Midlands because I am literally within about a four hour drive of 80% of British mortalities so I can get anywhere where there's a large population pretty quickly uh, and back mostly um, so by being in the middle I can be in Cornwall the same day or I can be in the lowlands of Scotland in the same day. We have places where we can base bikes in Scotland so that we can reach the highlands, etc. as well. We're most popular with the elderly generation because they're of the generation that they actually remember people having sidecars. A lot of their parents had sidecars or when they were young they saw them around, some of them even had them themselves. So it's a kind of nostalgic thing. About 35 years ago, people remembered the horse-drawn house and they asked for a horse-drawn carriage not because they had a horse just because it was nostalgic so most people who use our service do it for nostalgic reasons if they had a motorbike they've probably not ridden one for 30 years but they, they go on about it like it was yesterday and uh, then of course we have the bikers and on a slightly sadder note but an important note is we also serve at children's funerals when they industrialised funerals and everyone got the same car and the same route and the same length of service and the same colour of box, they forgot about the children. Years ago children got a lovely little horse or a hand beer or it was special for children, it, w it was scaled down in some way. But with a big automobile hearse, it just doesn't fit. But in a sidecar, child's beside the rider, it's a smaller back door, we can surround it with toy toys. and. Um, we, we take great pride, although we do find it quite difficult in doing, uh, looking after children as well. The most popular bike that we use is the Triumph because it's a traditional British bike. And at the end of the day, most people who die in Britain are British. And most of them are of an elderly generation or mature generation. And they, they think very highly of the British motorcycle. Um, second to that, we have two Suzuki Hayabusas. And the reason we have that is people want a fast bike and what's kind of bizarre is the really old people don't want a British bike if they're in the, about 95 because their memories of British bikes was oil leaks and things 
so they just want a fast bike so they'll quite often ask for the Suzuki which you probably wouldn't expect as an answer then finally we have a, a Harley Davidson a small number of motorcyclists like the American V-twin bike we did for a while have a tandem bicycle we used to call it pedaling death and uh, have a bit of fun with that we, we talk about recycling and we did a few funerals with that but we had to come to terms with the fact that we're all a bit fat so we sold it on a motorcycle funeral the cortege we don't know one day from the next what it's going to look like because sometimes the person who died they might not have had a motorbike for 30 years and the family might never have had one so you'll have the traditional limousines behind it then you've got other funerals where the family come with their own vehicles then you get your sort of motorcyclist or biker funerals there's loads and loads of motorbikes you could have 500 motorbikes behind you you could have all the roads blocked off you could have people um, literally like a royal funeral forming a line so that you have an uninterrupted trip so it varies but my attitude's simple I'm there to look after one person and make sure they get a dignified final ride and I'm there to care for the family as best I can when I can and I keep my focus on that so even if I'm the only vehicle and that also happens I've been the only person at the funeral uh, with the coffin and I've been asked to take them on my own and as far as I'm concerned whether it's just me on my own or there's a thousand people they get the same standard when I started I quickly discovered a recurring request and it was for what we call a last blast the, the classic is an older lady in her 70s and she'll say come on Sonny give it some and uh, you'll get people they just want a burst of speed up the road we don't have to hear around like hooligans the whole way but it means something to them to have that burst but what I find quite comical is and this is a, what I call a truism because it's almost an unbroken rule the younger the mourners are the less likely they are to ask you to go fast the older they are the quicker they want you to go and they'll actually complain if you don't go fast enough Years ago we used to always work through funeral directors but we found in recent years that that didn't always work out. Some of the funeral directors would add such a huge amount of money to our price, we're talking £900,000 to our price, it just meant it was completely unaffordable and I have to say unfair on the families that they would be charged that much. And then we also had the difficulty that quite a number of funeral directors at the end of the day they want to use their own automobile and they would have a rule no you have to use our hearse or something we supply so we were forced and it was probably the best thing that ever happened we were forced to allow families to come to us direct it's very important if you ask for a motorcycle it's a motorcycle you get and sadly we've had instances where a family have very clearly said you know our boy or our dad or our mum whoever it is love motorbikes and they turn up on the day of the funeral and lo and behold right in front of them there's a quad bike or a tricycle towing a trailer and the upset this can cause is hard to comprehend and we don't do anything like that what we provide is a proper properly fixed engineered motorbike with a sidecar hearse is classed as a motorcycle by DVLA if you get any doubts at all or you want to make sure may I encourage you to make sure phone Motorcycle Funerals Limited on 01530-274-888. A sarcophagus is a receptacle for a corpse.
most commonly carved from stone. The word sarcophagus comes from the Greek sarx meaning flesh and phagein meaning to eat. Hence sarcophagus means flesh eating. Since lithos is Greek for stone, lithos sarcophagus means flesh eating stone. The word came to refer to a particular kind of limestone that was thought to decompose the flesh of corpses interred within it. You're such a know-all. Before 1980, fewer than 10% of funerals included a eulogy by someone other than a clergyman, but the times they are a-changing. Now over half of us will stand up and say a few words. Funeral directors say the new popularity of the eulogy has almost doubled the average length of a funeral service. So many eulogists are now getting up to speak, it's like the open mic night at a comedy club. Perhaps we feel that if we don't speak up, our loved ones won't get a proper send-off. With people now moving around so much, their clergymen often don't really know them, and we are more vocally empowered than previous generations. People buy eulogies off the internet and sometimes confuse a eulogy with an off-colour best man's wedding speech, so funeral directors are working harder to maintain decorum. Basic eulogy-giving techniques, write it out, keep it short, avoid controversy, resist sobbing and focus on the deceased, not yourself, which if you replace the word deceased with audience are exactly the same instructions I got when starting stand-up. I imagine we'd all love a great eulogy, a fitting epitaph, something magnificent for history to mark us by. Sadly, as Percy Bysshe Shelley reminds us, we don't always get what we want. I met a traveller from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive. Stamped on these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings, look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. And on that more sombre note, I'll say thank you for listening. In the third and final episode of Life at Death's Door, we'll be exploring all the things that can be done with the body after death, like burying, cremating, or stuffing with straw and given a seat in the House of Lords. Until then, bye. Life at Death's Door, Episode 2, was written by Anne Teato and Steve Spence. Narrated by Joe Brand. Directed by Jack Bowman. Starring Brian Blessed, David Beck, Grace Bishop, Jonathan Brooke, Chikey Chan, James Duckworth, Simon Fielder, Marie Fortune, Shazia Nichols, Echo Corti, Jacoa Teato, and Joseph Teato. Edited and sound designed by Malcolm Thorpe. Engineered by Carlos Ziccarelli at Unity Studios London. Original music by Polly Haynes.
with many thanks to the University of the Arts, London.